Good evening, everybody. We have a wonderful special guest tonight to my right, your left, and or actually be my left, your right. <laughs> what do I do? I mean, I don't you know, know who the guest is. Yeah. is your day? I'll be the guest of my own show. How's that? <laughs> now, it, I, it's real simple. It's the only guy up here that has tattoos, as you can see by his, his right arm. That's a serious tattoo right there. It is serious. Yeah, it's God's. Is, it's God's word. It's God's sword. This is Ken Graves, and he—he—he's not making up the voice. It's no. real. Yeah, yeah. It's an extra charge to get him to do your outgoing voicemail for you. That's right. Speaking of that, you're—you're—you're you're, you're doing the intro for Charlie Kirk's new radio program. Am I? Yeah. He, 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 well, maybe you don't know, but well, it's not, it would be an honor. I did get—I I got to do the—the uh, the virtual Israel tour at the Museum of the Bible. The, right. the voiceover, the narration. That was an honor. I, the production company actually wanted somebody who loved the word. That's what was really cool. They weren't looking for a voice. They were looking for love in, their, yeah. in the voice, which is cool. Well, there is love in your voice for God's word. This yeah, is true. Yeah. They picked the right person. So Ken Graves is a pastor at Calvary Chapel, Bangor, Maine. And we've been friends for well over 20 years. Well over. Yeah. That's true. We were both, what, 12 when we met? Then we were young lads yeah. <laughs> with color in our hair. Actually, you're my age. I'm, I'm 56. What do you I'm, mean? I'm a year ahead. Of, I'm actually going to be 58 in a few days. Oh. Just ahead of you. I don't know. What, is it the water in Maine that makes you look younger and healthier oh, and stronger? Goodness. Seriously, you got muscles in places where I don't have places. You're big. Hard labor. I can get you some Advil for the swelling. It's, it's, <laughs> it's hard labor. It's, it's like being uh, sent to Siberia. It's a gulag. It's our state. You say that, but I've been with you in Maine, and you love that place. It's a beautiful gulag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Ken did a great blessing for us by uh, hosting our men's retreat, and they were scheduled to go up to the mountains here in California, and then the fires that started to rage through our state as are also happening in Washington and Oregon. Mm. Nefarious in some respects how these fires are all of a sudden popping up. Mm. Um, state of California is used to them, and we speak about our forestry and um, lack of tending to it, and that's why we end up having fires every season. Yeah. But this has been uncanny how terrible it's been, and I don't feel like going into that right now. Yeah. But suffice it to say, the camp was closed, and you stuck around and did the men's conference right here in our sanctuary, and mm -hmm. I was thinking, nobody's going to show up. They yeah. wanted to go up to the mountains, mm -hmm. and the place was packed, and they stayed here all day Saturday. Yeah. And it was just a remarkable day. So many men were blessed and grateful for you. And uh, you, you, you've been doing men's conferences across the country since I can remember. I mean, yeah. this, is, this is your wheelhouse. It has become that. Ironically, I, you know, I didn't set out to do that. Somebody asked me to do one. Seemed like a novel idea. And then after that, they, they just kept calling and... It, it, for two and a half decades, just getting on a plane almost every Friday morning and coming back into Bangor, Maine, which is not exactly no, it's not center easy. of the universe. Yeah. And you don't have a private plane, so you're doing puddle jumpers and yeah, yeah getting but, in at O Dark Thirty. But oh, Rob, it's been a blessing to meet brothers, to to find out who are those guys who will come around on a Saturday, on a day off, just to hear the word of God and to hear about Christ. And I've I've visited every, I think, church camp in this country. Every I don't know whether it's a you know, a church-run camp or some kind of a YMCA facility, and they're always, you know, in, in a beautiful part of the state. I, I've been on a great adventure. Now, you, you, 
when you commented that for the Museum of the Bible, they wanted to pick somebody who has a love for God's word, the reason why you have a love for God's word is because you've seen the power of the word of God change human lives, including your own. My life was changed. And it wasn't, um, you know, certainly there were sweet people that gave this, me as a child, uh, you know, Sunday school knowledge and and preached the gospel, even invited me to be baptized. And, and I'm very grateful for all of that. But it wasn't until at the age of 13, and it was the provocation of a, of a Christian man's example that made me want to actually re- read the word for myself. I've got to read it. My reading the word, dove into that book, I've never come out. And it changed my whole trajectory, my whole identity. Come to realize who, who Christ is. That, you know, the Lord says that you search the scriptures for in them you... You think you'll have eternal life. He says to the religious leaders, and it's they that testify of me. And my eyes being opened to the Bible, being about a person, being about Christ. And, and the Christ presented me in Scripture was so much more captivating than the sweet intentions of dear little ladies with a flannel graph and a paper doll. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, and you get to see the man, Jesus. Yeah. The, and, man, and he, the man of all men, and he... And he Captured my heart. You really, I get why, why the Apostle Paul would identify himself as a prisoner of the Lord. Because it, it, it seemed that way to me. You, you didn't come from the healthiest of families. I mean, uh, you, just in the conversations you and I have had, spending time together, uh, yeah. I, I think it would be fair to say that your family could put the fun in dysfunction. <laughs> we, were, we, were, we were so poor. So and poor you couldn't pay attention? So <laughs> I was so skinny. I had to tease the hair on my shins to get my socks to stay up. It was, it was, you know, I, I, laughing about it now, but when, when I was a boy and, and uh, drunkenness and, and the violence that it would produce destroyed a family. And I, I was eyewitness to my father who, who when sober would never be so cruel, but under the influence of hard liquor, could beat my mother's face bloody. Mm. Or be, or, or, or on one occasion, actually, my scream stopped him from killing her as he was choking the life out of her, holding her by the neck, and um, and and then you know alcohol and all of that wickedness t- took him from our family, and then uh, and we were worse off in many ways with him gone, you know and. <laughs> and the poverty that followed and the, the worry, being the only male, the only boy in a house full of girls, they had four sisters and, and my mother and, and, and then that poor woman, her, her longing for love and, you know, her, her broken heart just wandering from bar to bar and from man to man meant that my sisters had to be guarded and watched, and that was my my childhood was just worrying, guarding, watching. And Even early age, you were learning to be a shepherd. Didn't realize that then, yeah. but that the Lord truly—that's that's my insightful ability. The Lord truly does. <laughs> but you're right. I you, you, I look back at it all. I recognized I was in school. I didn't know, and the Lord used the pain of it all. To that was it was the pain, the misery, the the depression that caused me. To want to know where we come from, where are we going, why are we here? And I knew it, innately knew that the answers are going to be found in the Bible. And it was the only guy that I knew that I could tell knew the answer to those questions. And he had associated his life with the Bible as, as my teacher. He associated, he, he, um, 
had one on his desk that was the subject of controversy in our public school because it was there. Yeah. But that God used that because that helped me to make the connection between who he was, how he was, his his uh, degree of defiance of the government's order and uh, the jeopardy that it put him in and the jeopardy that he was willing to embrace. Yeah. Well, that, that, that's, that's a, a good connection to why we're both sitting here because yeah. David and I have, we're at 167 episodes on this and started with the lockdown and, and David's been with me the entire time and the congregation, the 15 elders, the pastoral staff yeah. as we've been in defiance of the governor. Mm-hmm. But what's knitted us is the fact that here we are on the West Coast, but there you are on the East Coast doing the exact same thing in a state where your governor is not real helpful and you've been in defiance of the governor wide open. It, uh, it is reality, though, that your governor is worse. Ours is bad. Yeah. You got the worst. You have the prize. Yeah. But I, I, I mean, <laughs> what do we win? <laughs> You're a little bit you, farther along on the course of uh, the legal system. That, Can you kind of give us an update from the last time you were we, here? I was, we were very fortunate because of my relationship with Matt Staver and Harry Mehat uh, at Liberty Council that when it first began, and it became abundantly clear, we ain't talking about a couple of weeks, that that's all a lie, that um, I wanted to go on offense and uh, I wanted to defy but I didn't want to just wait for them to come and challenge. So I called uh, Matt Staver and, and uh, Horatio Mihat. They had to inform me. They had to educate me in what I did not know, that we are part of the First Circuit Court of Appeals, just as you guys are a part of the Ninth Circuit. So you're dealing with the what is the second most liberal court in America. And they had to weigh that out as they're looking at resources and, and time and everything else. So as I'm making my pitch to them, come on, guys, let's sue her. Let's do it. Let's, let's, let's take this on. Let's do it. I, you I just will. do not seem like a combative type of warring oh, individual. My. You <laughs> seem so mean. I know. It seemed contrary to my, my nature. But, I, but they, were, they were on board. They, they talked. They met. They prayed. They called me and they go, you ready for the fight? Yes, I know that. <laughs> I, I said, I am. <laughs> And so we, we did initiate... Uh, suing our governor. At the same time, we made the public announcement of our defiance and our civil disobedience. But I, I did my best to make that a, a humbler presentation. I, I, did, I don't often write what I'm going to say, but I was so sure I could go off on just a rant. Yeah. I took the time to really seek the Lord fast and pray and then write a, a formal statement, videotaped that for, and made it available on our website for the world. And so we did. We, we went to the U.S. District Court there in uh, Bangor, Maine, and an Obama appointee denied us justice without hearing much. Huh. You know, the, the facts were presented on paper, but there was no real big hearing, a, a really a very brief conference, and we were denied, and we made our immediately, we, we, filed, we filed our appeal to the uh, First Circuit, and it's taken a month to get to the place where just last... Wednesday, they finally heard oral arguments in our case. And uh, First Circuit Court of Appeals is made up of three justices, three elderly and liberal justices. And you try to listen to the questions that they're asking while arguments are being made to get a sense of 
what direction they're going, and it would appear that one of those justices was not convinced that our case belonged at the Court of Appeals, but should be sent back to U.S. District Court. And, um, and thus far, it, it, the, the Supreme Court justices, likewise, the, at least the liberal Supreme Court justices, have been successful in avoiding having to rule on the merits of the First Amendment mm -hmm. uh, sort of issues. They don't want to have to rule on that. They just find ways to dismiss or to avoid or to be able to say that case shouldn't be heard by the Supreme Court. It hasn't gone far enough through the appeals process. And that would seem to be what is in the mind of one of the three. Yeah. So that one judge is kind of helping maybe push it down, slow it down, so then it has to go back up to them and then up to the Supreme Court. And we're talking three, four, five months out then. That buys them time. So it's not a defeat, it's a massive delay. It's them wanting to run out the clock. Yeah. And then none of them want to have to rule on the merits. They don't want to have to write an opinion. That's going to be tricky. Yeah. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're Justice John Roberts, right. the acrobat himself. Yeah. How are you going to come up with the... Uh, the the language that's not in the Constitution, that there is no... I mean, the, the simple words of Congress shall enact no law regarding the establishment of religion, nor prohibit the free exercise thereof. Every bit as much as we Americans would be outraged if anybody suddenly passed a law ordering us to church, we should, all of us, be outraged that someone would, would and call it a law, and they're not laws, they're just orders, executive orders, prohibiting the free exercise of our religion. And uh, so they've not had to write an opinion. They've not had to think it through or do any kind of weird acrobatics as, and we know they're capable yeah. as they, they've done with other issues. Yeah. Have they gone on the offensive on you? In other words, have they done a temporary restraining order or restricted your ability? We have you, been, you went that way, but have they gone after you guys? We have been very fortunate. They have left us alone and even telegraphed that they would leave us alone. When we were seeking an emergency injunction, they argued that there was no need for an emergency injunction. There's no emergency. They announced, their, their legal counsel said, we're, they're not being preve prevented from, from gathering. Which made me wonder, why is anyone anywhere in our state honoring their bans? They're not enforceable, and I think they know it. Now, there was, early on, there was some pressure applied to our county sheriff, who happens to be a good friend of mine, a good brother in the Lord, and an, an honorable man who, who um, didn't want to be put in that position, and uh, was grateful that early on, in a live radio interview, uh, they're locally in Maine. I, I use the word protest. And this is before all of the, you know, the, the what is called protest. Can we put them in invisible yeah. quotations? <laughs> what is being called protest, which are not at all, but they've used the word, they popularized the word, but before they broke that word out, I made the announcement that this is our regular peaceful protest at Calvary Chapel. We are protesting the, our governor's attempt to restrict our freedom, to deny us our right to peaceful assembly. And when our sheriff heard the word protest, he seized upon it for himself to have an out, to not be drug in. And I, I'm grateful for him. He's a, we, I mean, the Lord bless him for it. We stated the same thing on a couple of Sunday services, but it was tongue in cheek. And I know that Pastor John MacArthur did the same. Um, and, and their approach in California is a bit different than what you're facing in Maine. It is. And, and they are taking us to the courts, and they're seeking <laughs> temporary restraining orders, emergency restraining orders. <clears throat> and the idea is, you know, to cause the church to die of a thousand cuts. Um, yes. But 
but we, we, we come down to the basic understanding, uh, especially across the country, because we're, we're seeing churches across <coughs> the nation not opening. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing this virus, it, but, but of course the narrative in the media and the censorship of the frontline doctors and, and right. all that we're facing. But if we look at the data, CDC, et cetera, we're, we're looking at a virus that does not merit what they've done to us. It, it, they, and, and the governor, I mean, we're, we're, at a, we're at a point now with this virus <clears throat> that it can't even be labeled a pandemic. I'm, I, I'm, I, I, it's a shamdemic. Shamdemic, yeah. yeah. Trevor Shamockery. And, and we, we have a governor who is ruling by edict. Yes. And just dismisses right. everything. So Representative government <clears throat> in these states of ours does not exist right now. No. No, and, and rebellion towards those that are to govern by our consent. We're giving consent mm. by our, our unwillingness to push back to their violation of our inalienable rights. And that is the exact thing I, I had to... I actually put that in my written statement, that obeying it grants it the authority that it claims to have. And I can't do that. I would be in violation of my conscience. In fact, I, I argued that all of the voices, and there were voices up in, in our state, even the main Christian Civic League spokesman is encouraging all of us to just be compliant, discouraging all civil disobedience. And I had to argue that, look, you're, you're calling me to um, violate my own conscience to, in order to do that. And I can't do it. I think every, every call to restraint is calling me to disobey the Lord. Yeah. I, oh, go ahead. Uh, you know, I was just thinking, I, I, I was asking Micah, I think you were on episode like somewhere around 50 or so when we, 59. Uh-huh. And, you know, Rob was, and I were quoting the numbers back then. We were yeah. giving the truth. We were giving the facts. Yeah. And now, to Rob's point that he just made, we've used all these numbers. It doesn't seem like fact and truth is playing into this whole argument at all. And that's where we're going back to the biblical principles yeah. of knowledge and truth yeah. and where we're going. So it's just, it's just interesting, 110 episodes ago, we were really focusing on that. Dave, these are weird days. The anti-racists are racist. The anti-fascists are fascist. And all of those saying, we believe in science, and we're going to make a decision based on the science, are denying science, denying the obvious. I heard, um, um, like probably you guys, I'm a fan of Ben Shapiro, and nobody shoots faster. Yeah, he's Charlie me, he, does, but that's... <laughs> you know, he may shoot better, but Shapiro's fast. He's, he can talk so fast. Yeah. And... Um, and at one point, he's, he's being on a college campus, the typical argument that you're not qualified to speak on these subjects because you don't have a degree in any of those things. Mm-hmm. And uh, Shapiro's answer was perhaps a little crasser than my translation, but he's like, I don't, I don't need an uh, eight-year degree to identify bullcrap. Yeah. And that, that, that is a quote that has hung with me. The common man here in our country ought to by now see clearly they're being lied to. Yeah. Yeah. We, have a, we have a large church in Southern California, probably the largest church in Southern California. The pastor came out and listed all the reasons and, and used scriptural statements mm-hmm. as to why they're remaining closed. 
And when you were commenting on the gathering, I forget the Union of Christians, the, the organization you listed that right. uh, encouraged everyone to remain compliant yeah. and how it was a violation of, of your conviction, just this idea that I can't do that. Yeah. I, I'm looking at this pastor, and, and it's conversely true that I'm not, I'm not demanding that my brothers open. Right. I'm not, I'm not condemning them for not opening. I, I am exhorting them to look at the data. Yes. I'm exhorting them to re-examine the nature of government we've been given. I, I, am, I am doing that, but they're not my enemies because they're not open. But when I read the statement of this pastor, yeah. I am his enemy. Right. And I, I, I struggle over that. I'm but the great you. encouragement to me is Pastor John MacArthur, because early on, he would have found me rebellious, and here right. he is joining, and I'm I'm grateful that he, that he's that he's here. Yeah, I'm with you. We're, I mean, the three of us are going to be with him today. <clears throat> yes. Well, the two of us are going to be three of us today. When we're with him. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. But it is. I think of the Muhlenberg brothers. Yeah. I've tried to from the beginning have that gracious perspective that it's only a matter of time. The Muhlenberg brothers, both of them Lutheran pastors, one in Virginia, the other in New York, and the one already in the revolution was being reproved by Frederick Muhlenberg, his brother in New York, that he is a rebel. He's in violation of Romans chapter 13 and all kinds of other scripture. Yeah. And the letter, of course, back would, would be uh, Peter Muhlenberg down in Virginia accusing his brother of being a Tory sympathizer. And they were, their words were harsh, but they became like-minded when the British came and burned down the church. Burned down the church of the brother that... The Frederick, yeah. Frederick and his family barely escaped the fire yeah, yeah. in the parsonage. And he had his <clears throat> breakthrough, his, his evolution in yeah. his understanding. He became the nation's first speaker of the house. He didn't just join the revolution. You have a minister who's the very first speaker of the house of representatives. And, and that's the story of the two of them. Yeah. Now, which one... I'm trying to figure this out. Which, which of the two Muhlenberg brothers... Uh, ended up being the Speaker of the House because that, that that was Frederick. That was Frederick. Yeah. So he was the one That's right. who stood in opposition he to was, his brother. He was slower to join yeah. the revolution. <clears throat> yeah, and uh, and he did join, and he went all the way. He he was the one who has originally had the job that is now being occupied by yeah. Nancy that, Pelosi. That woman. Yeah. yeah that how uh, how's your support in your state from the fellow pastors? How can people not follow you with that tattoo and that voice? <laughs> they have found it. Quite easy, apparently. I, I have around our our state, and all of my pastor friends are in defiance. They are engaged in civil disobedience, but they've tried to do it in a lower profile way. I, I guess that that tends to be the more common way. And I suppose I wish I could have likewise. I, I, I think I do. A, I, I appear to some who don't share this conviction like some kind of a glory hound that just wants to be in the headlines. Uh, but to the brothers that know me, the pastors that I'm friends with, they're very supportive. They, they continually check on the status of the case. They in fact, I, I called what would have been uh, illegal prayer meeting when uh, early on before announcing our, our, uh, our decision, I called pastors to come and, and I even had to, send the invitation out by email and by text and informing them. If you come, you're already engaged in civil disobedience because this meeting isn't supposed to happen. There's no gathering of this size that is allowed. In fact, we were under uh, 
stay-at-home orders. You know, lock, lockdown completely. Um, can't leave for anything that is not. And you're, you, the numbers in your state are incredibly oh, we, low. We have 1.3 <clears throat> million people in our state. That's all. And we don't, we have just a little over now 150 actual deaths. And again, that's with, not from. Right. Boy, a preposition matters. <clears throat> and um, in fact, we had one poor lady die from um, our first shark attack. You know, great white killed a, a swimmer. Lord bless her. She just up in Maine trying to get away from, you know, the, the plague and the crazy of New Jersey. But indirectly, that's another COVID death. She was only there in that water because yeah. of COVID. So it was a COVID shark attack. Yeah. First, first shark attack in, since, I think, 1755. And you, yeah. you can't put that, you can't list it because that's a COVID death, so it's not a shark attack. Exactly. It, it just ruins the numbers. So, yeah. you know, we, we don't have those kind of numbers. There is, there is nothing that justifies the length. When you've got 600,000 people annually dying of cancer, Think of the hundreds of thousands of people who die from highway fatalities. and uh, are, uh, the, the real plague to me, the, the, the plague that has my heart, is the drug <clears throat> plague. And it is it, the numbers <clears throat> of drug overdose deaths have already doubled. And they're already so, so much higher than the numbers of COVID deaths, with, you know, with COVID even. This is this is a this is a good segue transition because I, I planned that. Yeah, well, well done. Uh, <laughs> no, because, I didn't because plan. you you have been instrumental for a, a number of folks that I know of in California. That you know we've got residential drug houses mm. uh, up and down the state that are ineffectual. Yeah, and uh, people uh. have spent tens of hundreds of thousands of dollars for their children yeah. to go in. They, they, they go through detox, but they come out and they're right back. There's, they're addressing the, the, the physical and the emotional side of it, but right. they don't have the spiritual side of it. And in complete desperation, they're fully bankrupt. Yes. Then they, they, they're desperate and I, I end up connecting. I call you and you, you take them to what you have as the Calvary Residential Discipleship Program in Bangor, yep. and, and you bring them in, and lives are profoundly changed. And, it, and the simplicity of it is really <clears throat> frightening. It's a bunkhouse. It's a dorm. I've been there. It's a dorm at church. Yeah. And it's just bringing guys to come live at the church. And give them a work ethic. And, and, and then spending time with them. It yeah. is, it's Deuteronomy chapter 6 style discipleship. What God commissioned the parents of Israel to do, to be to be teaching while walking in the way, while lying down, while sitting in your house, that you're always in that mode of instruction, sharing your life, the place for us where the, you know, the Great Commission and, and Christian hospitality come together and what we've come to call residential <coughs> discipleship. Now, why is it residential? Why'd you have to use that name? Well, Just the government's uh, desire to oversee everything uh, initially had our, some agency of our state continue to attempt to interfere with what we were doing with drug addicts, because if you even trying to call it, even if you're trying to call it a Christian uh, drug rehab, we we contend a you can't rehab what's never been habbed anyway. So this is not we're not rehabbing anybody, and there's no clinical uh, vocabulary here. What we are doing is spiritual, and so in order to try to get them to understand that, I think it's about the third or fourth time the state agency was trying to usurp 
authority over us. I had to go off with every theological term I could think to work into a, a paragraph to get them to understand. This is, this is about someone's salvation and then their sanctification, being filled with the Holy Spirit. They're going to experience change as they're being taught the ways of Christ. I had to lay on them John chapter 8. The Lord Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and the truth, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So we shorten that to disciples indeed are free indeed. Anyway, I had to express all of that. And then I think originally we were Seven Oaks Training Center, and I had to abandon the name and rebrand the whole thing for the state and for, to send a message to everybody else that what we're doing here is residential discipleship. That's a good word. Now, uh, how many folks have gone through the program <clears throat> since you started it? Now, uh, here's an ethnic statement, uh, but if I were a German, I would have an answer for that. <laughs> but I'm, I'm so not. I, I can only tell you it's been hundreds. It's been hundreds. I've, I've got guys who actually keep the files, and they could an answer that one more thoroughly than me. But over the, what have we been doing now, 23 years, hundreds have passed through. And our success rate, that I can tell you, is for those who complete our program, those who actually stuck around and graduate, <clears throat> those who actually recognize that the blessing of spiritual leaders who've invested in you is valuable and worth sticking around for. The guys who actually complete and graduate, we've got 75% uh, percent success rate. And the secular program can't even come up with a whole 1%. Not even a whole 1%. And our standards for success are higher than theirs. They think somebody's a success if they're only smoking weed. Uh, to us, somebody's a genuine success if they're, if they're engaged in good works and they're living for the Lord in total sobriety, not dependent upon chemicals. And, and we, a number of them are pastors of churches around Maine and the eastern seaboard. All over the place. There are people are Well, along with that, Rob, I, I, have, I have made the case for them, men and women alike, women's program as well, <clears throat> that who we are, we who give ourselves to some vice, are just really devoted people. We just devoted ourselves to the wrong thing. And if you'll give yourself to the same extent, to the same degree, in, in virtue, you, you're going to, I've had to explain, you're, either, you're the kind of people that are either going to be in ministry or you're going to be in misery, incarcerated <laughs> or institutionalized yeah. or in misery. You're going to be insane. You're going to be in a mess. <clears throat> we, we're the kind of people that are not going to just cut back and be, I don't know, happy, uh, you know, social drinkers. We're the kind of people that are going to be all out, flat out drunks who give everything to it. So to the same degree that they gave themselves to a vice, they must now give themselves to virtue. And it is true, the vast majority of those who have been really successful are those who are in ministry. I want to... I want to introduce somebody in a moment, but before I do that, it, it was interesting to me that you were with us on Sunday, the third service, and we have Joseph Bondarenko, 83 years young, survives basically a Russian gulag. I mean, uh, communist uh, uh, imprisonment, um, 23 hours a day in solitary confinement for preaching the gospel. Yes. And his comment was that they made everyone in the church, if you attended church, they had to take your name down and That's list right. that you yeah. were in attendance and that had to be submitted to the government. Mm -hmm. The Sunday he's preaching here, <clears throat> the governor comes out with a new yes. order 
Governor Mussolini and says that if you're having these gatherings, everyone's name needs to be mm-hmm. on that list. Coincidence? Yeah, and, and anywhere where you're trying to reach a human heart, whether right. it's a residential discipleship that the government wants to control yeah. or a church itself, yeah. it's an overreach of the freedoms that are intrinsically Amen. given to us by God. Amen. And the government doesn't set people free. It enslaves them. Amen. That uh, <clears throat> yesterday morning was the highlight of my year, a weird year. Yeah. Not many highlights. That was the most profound we already have over 10,000 views on Joseph's sermon. Man, I don't get that. I mean, <laughs> yeah. And, and at 83, he did three services like it was nothing. He did. That guy's a stud. And his I, wife, oh, my goodness, yeah. Mary's so precious. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. It was truly humbling, inspirational. I, I, I'm so grateful. It was a setup from God yeah. for me to be able to be here and to hear it. Well, let's, let's do this. Let's, the, the folks are probably very intrigued, and we'll go into more detail on it, on the uh, Calvary Residential Discipleship. Yep. How do they support you? How they, if they want to, yeah, they yeah. can visit our website, ccbangor.org. That's for Calvary Chapel, Bangor, ccbangor.org, and you can link right to CRD <coughs> on that, our website. Well, I, we, I'm, I'm glad that we put that up because that was a kind of sleight of hand. Um, yeah, I want to I want to introduce switching seats. David uh, graciously sat down because <clears throat> you traveled out here to California to do the men's conference. And every time you travel, you're discipling. And I've never known you not to travel with somebody. Yeah, I, and, and and it's always one of the, the, the folks from your one of the men from your residential yeah. discipleship. And so I want everyone to see, uh, sitting to my left, is Dominic. Dominic Marinello. <clears throat> Marinello. How you yeah. doing, man? Good, man. You got to hold that up or they won't hear you. I'm doing very well. It's an <laughs> honor to be here with my father uh, in the faith, Ken, Ken Graves, and um, Ron McCoy. <laughs> Seriously. It's an honor to be here. No, you, you brought him. I, I hadn't had the privilege to get to know Dominic that well. We had dinner last night. Yeah. And, and I... Like with every person that you travel with, there's a story. Yeah. And it wasn't until just now that you were sitting over there getting ready to transition with David. And you go, you know, I got a picture of what I look like when I came to the program. Because I'm, I'm looking at you now. I mean, seriously, like, Ken, you, and it, it's a little nauseating, but because um, you're all buff. And, and, and here you, you look great. You know, your, your, your complexion, your countenance, the joy. Yeah. I saw you at dinner last night. You're laughing. You're sitting next to my son. There, there's, there's. No concern. You're with my boy. I'm looking. These are two guys are probably schoolmates. You know, they, they, they're doing great. They're successful. They're, but how long ago was it when Dominic came into so the... Three years ago. Three years ago. <clears throat> you were 19 at the time. 19. And hanging by a thread, physically. Well, take a look at the picture that Dominic <clears throat> brought, and, and this is what he looked like when he came in. Oh. You, you, I mean, that's, that's night of the living dead. And that's what you see in downtown... Los Angeles yeah. in the in the valley there you're going to see these folks that the government is giving them free needles yeah. to allow them to continue in this life. You go into San Francisco and and this is what is this picture is commonplace on the streets of San Francisco. And Dominic, you walk in, tell us a little bit about how you ended up and and just just share with me how you ended up at the residential unit. So, it's what's one thing I want to say, what's crazy about those pictures is 
you know, when people take them of you, you're so deceived and you're so lost that you think you, you look normal, right? You think that, you know, there's nothing wrong with you and, and as far as how you look. Um, I grew up in a, in a small town called Westville, New Jersey. Um, it's about the first or second exit from the bridge from Philly. So we consider ourselves South Jerseyans. And um, in that area I grew up in, it was just a lot of kids that were, were fatherless and that happened to be me. I grew up with a single mom and a grandmother who they took care of me and um, it was tough. Naturally, you know, I, I was very, I had to, you know, put up this image of myself to, to be tough because I didn't have anybody really there for me to, you know, be that, that person to look up to and, and to watch after me. So I had a single mom. We grew up kind of poor. We basically just had what we needed. And my mother, she did a very good job of, of working hard and um, being able to provide for us. But like I said, as far as a, um, a leader, I didn't have one. At a very young age, she started taking me to church. You know, she was actually um, a drunkard. She had problems with alcohol when she was young. And um, she, by, right before she had me, she stopped drinking. She went through AA back when it was actually based off the Bible, and it wasn't just a higher power. It was, you know, Jesus Christ. And that's how she came to Jesus. And um, at a young age, she read me the Bible and took me to church, and she introduced me to Jesus Christ. And, you know, I said the prayer of salvation and things like that. And um, I don't really think that I, I knew Jesus. I didn't understand the gospel or that I was a sinner. I don't know if it was because I was too young or, or what it was. But looking further in my story, I had someone say to me that the Lord did remember you, though. He, he knew you. And um, he knew you since you were born. But he remembered me that whole time, even when I looked to every other way for the world to, to get out of the issues because I didn't want to surrender my life. And um, at a young age, I, I just got into the wrong crowd. Um, statistically, it will show, um, Ken said it many times, that kids that don't have fathers, they tend to hang out with each other, and it ends up being, what, 10 times worse? Yeah. 10 times worse. So we got into trouble. You know, we were naturally rebellious, starting a lot of problems. And um, as I got older, in the middle school is when I got introduced to, to drugs. I started smoking weed, and, um, you know, it was justified. It's justified to smoke weed, as we see nowadays. You know, yeah. it's, it's, not, it's not a hard drug. But what I what I see now, looking back on it, it was a gateway drug. As soon as I started, as soon as I started smoking weed, I started selling it because, like I said, I grew up kind of poor, and I wanted to make some money. And um, I used to hang out with the jocks and the kids that did good in school and things like that. And I was considered a good kid, you know. And when I started selling weed, in order to be able to sell that weed, I got to change who I'm hanging out with. Yeah. So I started hanging out with kids that were poor influences, right? And um, as I did that, I started getting in fights and things like that. And um, fast forward a little bit into high school, I had um, pretty much depression set in of not knowing my savior and having that hole in my heart and trying to fill it with a bunch of different other things as far as, as women and um, drugs and things like that. And my grandmom and my mother were the ones that raised me. My mom, she was working a lot, so my grandmom was always there. And I could see, looking back, um, that was really the point, my turning point. I was smoking weed, I was messing around with, with pills here and there and drinking, but I wasn't really physically addicted to anything at that time. But once my grandmom died, mm. um, that really kind of broke my heart. And I started trying to numb, numb myself, which I, looking back now, I realized I was numbing myself spiritually, mentally, and physically. So quickly I got addicted to these Percocets that I was getting a hold of that we were stealing out of my friend's med um, parents' medicine cabinets. 
and I was quickly formed a habit to that. And um, when I was selling the drugs, I ended up getting arrested for that. The house I was living in, it got raided. So um, I got put on probation, and now, obviously, on probation, you can't do those drugs. So they drug tested me, and I could see the Lord's hand in that. As far as I couldn't do drugs, I ended up getting sent away to rehab in a, as a junior. At 16 years old, I was fully addicted to heroin. I got sent away to my first rehab, and then I was there for four months. It was a secular program. You know, they, they tried to go over the 12 steps, which I mentioned to me had no power. Right. It really didn't because they tell you higher power, and then I've met people that said their chair is higher power. Well, that's, that's not really power, is it, right? Yeah. That's, that's another thing you created. And um, it wasn't until later in life when I met Jesus. I got out of that four-month program, and within a month I relapsed. You know, I still was holding on to these little things as far as smoking weed and um, whatever it was, drinking. And I still had that hole in my heart. And um, I didn't realize that it was God's size at that time yet. I still wanted to try everything else. So immediately I relapsed. I got sent back to another program for another four months. Missed the whole junior year. I got out in in, um, summer, and I was like, all right, this time I won't smoke weed. This time I won't sell drugs. And I was going to high school and welding school at night. And I was kind of just physically just constantly doing something. So I was distracted the whole time. But I was never really working on the heart the whole time. Sure. At night, I still hated myself. You know, I was still depressed. I still didn't want to live anymore. It was like doing a prison sentence in my head. Every day I wake up, I'm like, I can't get high today. I can't get high today. Meanwhile, I have all this condemnation of all the things that I did yeah. that the world has no answer for besides depression medicine and things like that, which is just a blanket. It doesn't really cure any of those issues. So every night when I go to bed, I, I was like, I don't want to hurt my parents anymore. You know, I don't want to hurt the people I love but I had no power over it. I was powerless. So shortly, a couple months later, I uh, relapsed back on heroin, and um, I overdosed once. Somehow I managed to get through high school, get through welding school, after relapsing, missing four months, and coming back by the Mm. grace of God. Somehow they let me make up the work, and I graduated high school, and I graduated in welding school. But right after that, I I went off the deep end. I I truly did. And um, at this time, I, I gave up on myself, and I, I ended up being homeless in a, in a city called Camden, New Jersey, which at one time was one of the most dangerous cities yeah. in America. Yeah. Truly dangerous city. And I went out there, and I just stayed out there homeless. And um, I had my, my mom looking for me. I had the girlfriend I was with at that time, and they were looking for me. And I, and I told them, stop looking for me. I had overdosed about five or six times at this point. I couldn't stop getting high. I said, stop looking for me. I'm not even going to try anymore. All I do is hurt you guys. And I told him, I, I, I just don't want to do that anymore. I was like, just get used to the point that you don't have, you don't have a son anymore. Yeah. Because I have, I have no power over this. So I was homeless for a couple of months on the streets of Camden. And um, my, last, my last resort, which is crazy because it was the only resort, is I, I cried out to God. And I remember at a young age, just praying to the Lord and how he had taken care of my mom and I as having a single mom and not really having provision like that in anything, or anything. And I prayed to him, and I wanted to kill myself, whether it was jumping off a bridge there or trying to get enough drugs to kill myself that way. And I cried out to him. And I really believe it was the Lord. I ended up getting MRSA in my hand, and it was so bad that I kept getting um, my fingers messed up to this day for the rest of my life. That's an infection? Yeah. MRSA is a really bad infection that a regular antibody, biotics can't get rid of. They can kill you. Yeah, they yeah. can kill me. So I didn't even know about it. 
but it got into my bone to the point where my, my finger was about to fall off. And it hurt so bad that even when I was high on heroin, straight fentanyl... Um, it wouldn't go away. It wouldn't go away. It was still throbbing. At this time, I was sleeping in an abandoned house that had burned down, literally size of a couch cushion like this, sleeping curled up like that at 18 years old. And um, I got the mercy in my hand, and I had to go to the hospital. And there, by the grace of God, they, they ended up helping me wean off the heroin. After going there, I left like three different times because I was still trying to manipulate and control everything that was going on. Yeah. And um, I finally couldn't anymore because my hand was about to fall off. I had no other choice. I was sleeping on, like I told you, a terrible spot. It was getting cold outside. I was freezing. And like I said, I cried out to the Lord, and I, and I went back and um, told him I have an issue, you know, with heroin. If you guys don't help me get off, then I'm going to keep leaving, keep leaving. So the Lord used them to, you know, get me off the drugs. And um, when I was in there, they had to put me on IV antibiotics. So I was in the hospital for about two months um, in a rehabilitation center, and they were giving me this antibiotic. And I had my aunt, I, I used to go to Calvary, South Jersey when I was younger, here and there whenever I was with my aunts. And I went to church with my mom too, but she had a friend and she, her ministry is actually, it's crazy. The Lord's hand was in this, Carrie Sweeney, that's my aunt's name. She prays for people that are in the hospital. So her and her friend come and they, and they pray for me. And um, they give me a Bible and they remind me about the program in Maine. And um, what I, what cause they told me before and I, there was, I was like, there's no way I'm going to a year program. Right, I couldn't even. I didn't even want to do the three, four months that I was forced to do because of probation. They remind me about the program, and I had a friend that I grew up with. His name was Tyler, and he had just completed the program at that time, and he had actually met my aunt six months before that on a relief in Houston, Texas, after the hurricane. Yeah, he had no clue who she was. The Lord's hand was raised, and his dad is assistant pastor at Calvary South Jersey, and um, my aunt had bought him the plane ticket to go down and help with the relief. So they sit next to each other on the plane, and she's like, you know, I want my nephew to go to that program. He's like, who's your nephew? She said, Dominic. He said, Dominic who? He's like, she said, Marinello. And she was like, no way. He said, no way. I grew up with Don. You know, we were getting high together. And, and they started to weep together, and they prayed for me. And they even have a prayer board at Calvary <laughs> Residential Discipleship that's infamous that if someone's name gets on there, <laughs> sooner or later, they're going to end up in that program. And I strongly believe the power of prayer. Amen. There are so many people praying for me. So I talked to Tyler, and I asked him to get me into the program, and he talked to Dave Norsworthy, assistant pastor at the program, yeah. and, and I was broke. I think they came up with a couple hundred dollars, but it was truly by the grace of, of that church, Ken and Dave, that they allowed me to come to that program, and, and they gave me a shot. You know, I had burned every bridge, and I went there, and um, it was on February 6th that Ken and I did an altar call, and um, I heard the Lord speak to me to surrender my life and truly give it to him. And... Um, because he had saved me, and it was only right. It was worthy, and, and that's what I did from that point on. I surrendered my life, and, you know, it's, it's a lie what the world tells you. Following Jesus is, is um, you know, it's tough. you got to give up all these things, these fleshly lusts that truly, they, they mean nothing. It's literally killing you when, you when you fulfill those instant gratification lusts. It's killing you, but the world teaches you to follow that, and that's where true happiness is, whether it's that drug, that woman, that job, and you chase these things, but like I said, over time, at the end of the night, you're sitting there and you're like, I hate myself. What is my life? It doesn't mean yeah. anything. And it wasn't until I gave my life to Christ <laughs> and I had direction in my life. And um, he, he gave me that direction and he gave me the power to start walking in it. 
And um, fast forward a couple years, I did the program, which was, was a year for me because I'm not married. It's six months for people that are married. Yeah. And um, I grew a lot because of the godly men I was surrounded with, like Ken, <clears throat> my father, and my, in the faith, and, you know, the director of the program, John Fleming, and really great people that demonstrate what it's like to walk with Christ, un, uncompromised lives. And, you know, I, I don't think that um, envying is, is considered a good thing, but I envied these god, godly men in my lives. And I'm like, you know, they treat their wife good. You know, they, they know how to be a father. And that's something I've never seen in my life. You know, none of my friends even had dads. And I saw this thing. It just all the more motivated me. It's something that you don't really see in the secular program. And um, fast forward to about two years later, and um, I had a job welding that the Lord blessed me with. I kind of wanted to, you know, take what the Lord did for me. And when I graduated the program, I wanted to, you know, I was still going to church, still in fellowship, helping out with the youth group. I was kind of on this doulos crew thing, which is kind of like a deacon. I was still serving, but when I was in the program, the Lord had told me, he said, you know, I want you to do school ministry. You know, I've done this much for you, and I want you to allow me to use you in these other addicts' lives. Yeah, man. And um, I didn't want to do that because I knew how much you'd have to sacrifice to do that. You're living with, that's a whole other year living with men. And yep, yep. You know it can get tough. So I, I worked a job for a while, and I was making good money, and... Um, I ended up going, I was going to the young adults where Travis Carey, who's another man's lives been changed by. Um, and you know Travis. Yeah. yeah. By uh, Jesus Christ's grace, him and his wife's lives yeah. are changed. And they're running a ministry called Academy, which is kind of like young adults, college age ministry. And they had a, um, a retreat kind of. And I went to that and the Lord the whole time was telling me, he said, school ministry, school ministry. I want you to give me your life back. You know, it's, it's only worth it. And I believe it's um, Hebrews 12.1 where it talks about that weight, lay aside that weight. And um, that for me was that job. That so easily beset you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I wait, and I, even though it wasn't a sin to have that job, it was a good thing the Lord blessed me with. <laughs> it was only right that I sacrificed that back to him and serve him. Amen. So that's where I've been for in the school ministry program now for four and a half months. And, um, by God's grace, Ken's wife, Jeanette, wasn't able to make it up here. And he allowed me to come with him. And yeah, that's the only time you don't travel with with uh, one of the young guys yeah. is when Jeanette comes. That's so right. That's a total. <clears throat> it is the privilege to be able to <clears throat> watch the Lord work. Yeah. And you won't get to watch it if they're not around. You've got to have these guys around. The, the pictures were, the, the before pictures were, right before you came into the program? Was that Camden um, period of time? or uh, Those were... I think the one where I'm on the bench was a couple years before that. Wow, man. And it might have been a year and a half. I think oh, that was around man. the first time I got out of rehab. Oh, man. That last one was in the midst of that terrible run. Um, my dad, you had the MRSA and all that. Oh. Yeah. So my dad was letting me stay there here and there. He still lives with his mom. He's actually on methadone right now. He's still struggling with addiction. But um, they allowed me to stay there because I had nowhere else to go, and yeah. I ruined that too. You know? I'll tell you something. Uh, Dom, you're a man of God, and and <laughs> not an ex anything, a current something. Yeah, and you're, not, you're not an ex drug addict. Oh my goodness, the, what the Lord does. Child of the King. Only, 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 only Christ can do this thing. He changes lives. He sets people free. So you don't spend the rest of your life identifying yourself. You know, as as you know, the, the Lord Jesus. He heals a blind man. He gives that blind man sight. He doesn't go to meetings for the rest of his life. Going on. Bartimaeus, hi Bartimaeus. 
I'm, I'm recovering, recovering blind, blind man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I could lose it any second. One day at a time. That's my motto. No, no, I, you know, I, I know once I was blind and I now see. There's that testimony of that guy, yeah. right? Yeah. Exactly. Second Corinthians 5.17 talks about being a new creation. Yeah. And that's truly what I am. You know, and Amen. All right, and, and then ladies, Dom, Dom Stengel, he's out here in California looking for a wife as well. He, he, he's <laughs> he's, he's be strong. He works hard. He's real nice. Okay. I'll give my number to Rob. No, no, we're not doing that. No, I'm I got kidding. limits. All right, put the number up. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so growing up in New Jersey, uh, was that the first time to Maine for you? Yes, that was the furthest I'd ever been from okay. New Jersey. So, Maine, and, and first you, time. And you just flew over a ton of states. You've never been to California. Yeah, I've never been to Cali. This is a big trip for you. Yeah, it's but beautiful here. First time in a plane? No, I had flew back from um, Philly to uh, Maine a couple times. Just okay. going back and yeah. see family. But um, it wasn't until I came to Maine. The Lord got me right until then I went on a plane for the first time. It's an interesting thing about uh, New Jersey. Northern New Jersey identifies itself with New York City and their teams. You know, South Jersey identifies itself with Philadelphia and Eagles. And, you know, it, it's an interesting dynamic. Yeah, the, the, our little corner of the Northeast. Well, I, I, I think, you know, not only yesterday when we when we witnessed uh, the Bondarenko family, you have Joseph and, and the KGB, the, the, the government's telling him, you won't live, your family will be destroyed. None of this preaching the gospel's worth it, give it up. And then to see him up here at 83 with his wife, all their children Glorious. and their grandchildren praising God in the language yeah. that that a government tried to use only for secular purposes and then praising the Lord. And, you know, man, we've read the end of the book. God wins. Amen, and he always wins. And, and, the, and the beautiful thing is that testimony, and here you're just talking, you and I are having a conversation, mm -hmm. two older guys, and, and let's, let's show a miracle. Bam. And every, I, I don't believe in miracles. I don't, okay, how are you going to fix that picture? Right. I mean, you, you, Night of the Living Dead walks in, and you, you can't fix him. I can't fix him. <laughs> but God. Only Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs> but God. And, and here's, here's the, I mean, we're running out of time, but here's, here's the thing I, I guess we'll close with is Dominic came up here, sat down. Hmm. I maybe asked him two questions. <laughs> he just fired. He wanted everyone Amen. to know what Jesus had done for him. Amen. Yes. I, I didn't have to script it. I didn't. Nope. I, we didn't it, even know what he was going to say. Didn't have him. to squeeze it out and, of him. And this is this isn't the, <laughs> this is probably the first time from a camera for you. But it's just this is what God's done. I can't. I want to tell everybody. Yeah, Amen. I love that, Dom. That's Thank awesome. You. Thank you, sir. Yeah. You, hey, and you know I don't like to steal people. But I just want you to know uh, I'm targeting him. I had the very conversation with him this morning that's likely to happen. Yeah. And I also said, man, you gotta you gotta go. The Lord's leading you. Yeah. Amen. So I'm gonna I'm gonna have Micah connect with him. Oh good. All right. That'd be a blessing. An honor to meet you and a blessing. 
Thank you, sir. Just, and, and this is a hand that still works because the MRSA was healed. Yeah, yeah. I got to hide it. I got to put some extra strength in there. So sometimes I don't know if I'm breaking <laughs> someone's hand when no, I do that. It's all good. It's, it's just the elderly. We're, I can go put it on ice. <laughs> Well, uh, Ken, thank you so much. Dominic, thank you so much. Thank you. A, a great joy for, for the folks viewing. Yeah. And um, we, we, we see how to support uh, Calvary Residential Discipleship. And support is, is appreciated because yeah. it allows us. We, we've got our cost down to where we're. Uh, I've seen it. Room and board <laughs> is what? Something like $33 a day. You just can't pull that off. You can't pull that off anyway. Yeah. So it, it requires the generosity of a church family, making the building available and the staff available. But You run but, a uh, tight ship there. I've been through Bangor, Calvary Chapel, and it's it's remarkable. And you guys build furniture, too. Uh, and and all kinds stuff. of stuff. Yeah, you, we, we do stuff. Yeah. We stay busy. Idle hands are the devil's tools. Yeah. Well, um, I'll tell you what, why don't you close us in prayer and, and read out of numbers for us, if you would. Absolutely. Father, thank you for your mercy upon us and that you find in your kindness a way to use us and, and make us usable. We are, our experience, Lord, is just as the Apostle Paul testified to young Timothy, he said, God counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Hmm. He didn't find Paul faithful. You counted him, and just by counting him that, you, you made him that. You've done that with us. We are grateful, Father, that you've allowed us to, to just have a role, a part to play. Thank you for the grace that set Don Marinello free. Amen. Father, thank you for the man that yes, you made Lord. him into. And we're excited to see what you're going to do with his life. Amen. We pray your continued blessing upon Calvary Residential Discipleship, your provision and your guidance and give us wisdom for these days in which we live in the holy name of our king jesus amen amen, amen. The Lord, they'll, they'll put it up there for you it's here right here yeah, the lord bless you and keep you the lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you the lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace all right so 167 episodes we've read that and uh and I don't think it's ever sounded better. No, so. thanks. We're just gonna we're just gonna run that on a loop from here on out. <laughs> All right. Well, if you haven't been blessed, you need to go to a doctor because your heart stopped. So that hit everybody in the fields. Dominic, thank you. Ken, thank you, folks. We'll see you tomorrow night. God bless you all.